0: Okay, uh, we're reading from Malachi uh, chapter 3, starting at verse 13 through to the end. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, What have we said against you? You have said, It is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty. But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction.
1: A question for you, just while I find the headset. When is it okay to start celebrate, start putting your Christmas decorations up? Discuss with your neighbour. Okay, bring you back together. Because <clears throat> something happens in the shops, doesn't it? On the, it's usually after Halloween's finished. Um, mince pies come for sale in coals and Woolies. You get plastic green trees and fairy lights for sale in, in Big W and Target and other shops. You know, you've barely got over term three when suddenly everybody starts telling you it's nearly Christmas. So, when is there? I mean, in our household, once the Christmas pageant's been on, the gloves are off. It's like an explosion in a tinsel factory. But those shops and people like me, perhaps prematurely, we're, we're living life in that time, in light of a day that is definitely coming. A day that, whether you like it or not, makes a difference. Christmas Day. It's a day in the future that's making a difference to how life is lived today. And in this final part of Malachi that we're looking at, God's people are reminded to live today, informed by, in light of, the fact that there is a day coming a day that will make a difference once and for all. So in your leaflets is an outline, and basically we're going to follow the passage. And it's the last of these sort of courtroom kind of conversations where God is the prosecutor making an accusation and presenting evidence. Um, And in this case, of the last words against him, last words are the first heading. Then we'll hear from another group, the first words, the first positive words about a group of God's people that we've heard in Malachi. And finally, final words, looking forward to this day of the Lord. So that's where we're heading. So let's dive in, first of all, into these last words. And we're talking about two groups of people then. This, this is the first group, the majority, the same group that we've been following all the way through Malachi, Okay. And all the way through, what we've seen is this pattern, where God causes people out on where they're going wrong, and they basically deny it, um, don't even see it as a problem. It's like my brother, every Christmas, while we're on Christmas, year in, year out, he'd sneak downstairs early and scoff every single one of the chocolate Christmas tree decorations. He'd say, well, I didn't even know about the Christmas decorations. Meanwhile, he's got chocolates smeared around his chops and bits of foil falling out of his pajama pockets, you know. It's it's as if like they don't—they don't even know there's a problem, because each dispute shows that they've drifted from God, and that they don't even realize that what he's accusing them of is even an issue. And their problems we saw in the first talk all come from this deep underlying issue they've got—that they're not convinced that God loves them, they're not convinced God has their back, and they're not convinced God will keep His promises. So now we come to the crunch. We come to where all this is leading them and we find out what they really think, where this doubt of God's love has led them to. Actually, where doubting God's love leads all of us to. Because at the heart of sin, so by sin I mean a prideful rebellion against God in one way or another. At the heart of sin, is our belief that there is something better than God. That we're better off without him. At the heart of sin is our belief that there's something better than God. God's people have been gossiping together about God. And he's heard what they've been saying behind his back. Verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now, we call the arrogant blessed, and certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Have you noticed how, now that the sheen of their relationship with God has worn off, they start to misrepresent God? going about like mourners they they say it is now in god's covenant law that they were following sure there were ways to lament and to confess sin and express repentance and on rare occasions that did involve looking like mourners sackcloth and ashes that sort of thing but if you just step back and take their their covenant law as a whole you wouldn't characterize it like that in fact if you had to label God's covenant law. You could reasonably call it the party celebration law. Because even when you went to offer sacrifices for your sin, um, some got offered up, the priest took some, but the rest, you got to eat at a feast, at a party. And there were heaps of celebrations throughout the year, um, big community parties for for all God's people and outsiders and the poor, um, to help celebrate and remember God's goodness to them. You know, God had promised, we saw this when we did Deuteronomy, God had promised if they kept the law, the nations around them would see how good their life was, that they'd be jealous and want to be one of them. So our culture, our sort of public narrative of our society, likes to sell an idea of God and his people being Essentially, uptight killjoys. who wants to destroy all the fun. But the truth is, God invented fun. And his law reflects that. He created good things for us to enjoy and gave the law so that his people, so that we, could learn how best to enjoy God's world. So actually, carrying out God's requirements minimized They're going about like mourners. So don't believe the lie that God is a party pooper. But there are four words in what they said that expose their hearts, that expose what our hearts are fixed on when we sin. Four words. What do we gain? What do we gain? See, their life had become about themselves And their relationship with God was assessed on how easy or hard it made life for them. And their assessment was that actually, not only were they worse off with God, but those who were upfront and arrogant about opposing him, about doing evil, they seemed better off. Those arrogant people, their grass was greener, better crops, more livestock, more status, more influence. But if our hearts are fixed on what's in it for me, the answer is always going to be not enough. We'll just keep moving the goalposts, raising our expectations of what is enough um, to call, for us to call a gain. Like the Israelites, what do I gain? That question makes us wonder, what have Other the people gained. And if we think they've gained more than us, we're jealous, blinded by envy from seeing that actually they're no happier than we are. And if we look at them and say, oh, they've got less than us, we become proud and conceited, blinded by our arrogance, that actually we're still unfulfilled. But if we look at Jesus look at the gospel, we see that to go up, you have to go down. Jesus gave up his glorious place in heaven that belonged to him to become one one of us. Jesus gave himself up to death to pay for our sins, to be raised, bringing us the promise of eternal life. We need to let go of our life, trusting Jesus with it. Because our greatest gain is not clinging on to our life, our interests, what we gain for ourselves. You see, we're an important part of God's creation, we're made in His image, but we're not the end of it. We're not what God's creation is for, what it's all about. We are not the main character. The main character is Jesus. And that's why nothing is more fulfilling, more worthwhile, more glorious than submitting your life and will to him who gave up his life for you, seeking his gain. You see, following Jesus turns the economy of ourself on its head. Losing for Jesus is actually, in reality, gain. Gain. So from Philippians, Apostle Paul puts it like this. Whatever were gains to me, now I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Trouble is, we all know an arrogant, we all know an arrogant evildoer, don't we? You know, the kind of person these Israelites are talking about, someone who openly mocks the very idea of God, who arrogantly asserts that rules don't apply to them. People who seem to think that reality will change around them. You know what the really annoying thing is? Very often, it seems to, doesn't it? They get away with it. Why does God let those who are obviously against him prosper? Well, the question is, are they really prospering? Or are they being judged? Is it a form of judgment than being handed over to themselves and what they think is gain? Because Jesus is better. Life lived for God is better. And they are missing out. And they're on very flimsy ground. And I think another reason these people seem to prosper is that God is patient. God's patient, giving us time to repent and be forgiven. If you Imagine you could go back and have a word with yourself, your, your old self, your previous self, somewhere in your life. I think all of us would find a point in life we'd like to go to and give ourselves a talking to. Perhaps a point in our lives where someone else might say, you're one of those arrogant people who needed bringing down a peg or two. We can thank God that he's more merciful than you or I. Okay, so that's the last words. Now, on to our next heading. First words, that is, the first positive words we hear about God's people. Excuse me. So, if the heart of sin is believing that there's something better than God, the heart of saving faith is knowing God is greatest in everything. The heart of saving faith is knowing that God is greatest in everything. And in the Bible, this is known as fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. And what we discover here is in verses 16 to 18, is that there's been another group of God's people gossiping about God, but gossiping in a very different way. So verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his, his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. Fear. Okay, we have got a quick quiz for you um, about phobias, things people are afraid of. So do you know this one? Ablutophobia. Any ideas? Toilets? That's a fear of washing or bathing. Okay, I think some of us with teenagers have come across this. Um, how about this one? Globophobia. Sharon, you've got this. A fear of balloons. Yeah, ooh, yeah, How about this one? Trichophobia. No, it's not as bad as you think it is. Fear of hair loss. Okay, it's, it's, really, it's really not an issue. It's really not an issue. You don't need to worry. Fears, we tend to think of fears, when we give them names like that, we tend to think of them as a purely negative thing, you know, something to be overcome. But some fear is appropriate, isn't it? How about fire? If you think about fire, it's a good, helpful thing that we can use, but it's also dangerous. And you need to respect its properties and adjust how we treat it accordingly. Well, fearing God is knowing who God really is and treating him accordingly. Fearing God is knowing who God is and treating him accordingly. So fearing God is a good thing. You know, it's a joyful thing because it means thinking and believing and responding to God and who he actually is. To fear God means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by the wonder and the greatness of God and his love for us. To fear God means to know that every step or action or thought or giving of our heart towards him Is better than the alternative. To know God is is true gain. And this group, uh, in these verses, are responding to God based on what they know is unchangingly true about Him, as it's revealed to Him to them in His promises to them through the law and through the prophets. See the other group that we've been dealing with. They've been responding to God based on their circumstances or even based on their enemy circumstances, or whatever seemed important to them on that day. But notice from verse 16 and 17, fearing God makes a difference. Fearing God makes a difference. God remembers it, and because because of them fearing him, will spare them when it comes to finally separate righteous and wicked So notice that distinction. It's not the Israelites versus the nations. It's not those who are religious and those who aren't. It's those who fear God and those who don't. Those who serve God and those who don't, it says in in verse 17, I think. And since Jesus came into the world, the way to fear God is to trust and believe in Jesus. Because to know Jesus is to know God. Knowing Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us in his death and his resurrection and responding to him by turning to him in repentance and faith. That's how God wants us to fear him now. And when we do, we're freed from fearing the judgment that we deserve, freed instead to serve, serve God from salvation not for salvation. So from Philippians 2. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. We're free to live um, now in the light of how great and awesome and merciful God is to us in Jesus. And not only that, God promises to work in us by his spirit, giving us the strength and the power to love and serve him, giving us what we need to fear him. I was on a course with Cameron this week and we we came across these two diagnostic questions that I found them really helpful for working out how we're going fearing God by making Jesus Lord over all of our life, okay? For working out if we really think God is our greatest gain, God is the better offer. So here's the questions, just good diagnostic questions. First, am I willing to obey what the Bible clearly teaches, whether I like it or not? Am I willing to obey what the Bible clearly teaches, whether I like it or not? And the next one, am I willing to trust God with whatever he sends into my life? whether I understand it or not. I just find them really helpful. Get right to the heart, don't they? See, God promises to work in us to help us to get there, to help us to answer yes to those questions. And he provides other Christians to talk to us, to help us get there. Because we need to fear God together. We need to fear God together. So verse 16, God heard them talking with one another. They, they were encouraging one another. They gossiped about God's goodness and greatness. And we need that. We are saved as individual Jews, yes, but we're saved into Christ's body, the church, into community. We aren't meant to go it alone. We're prone to forget god's goodness and to have our ideas about god distorted it's like have you ever been to a watched a movie and you really enjoyed it thought it was the best movie you've seen this year and then you read someone else's review about it and apparently you weren't supposed to like it and it sort of diminishes your sort of enjoyment of that film that you really enjoyed we can get end up having our ideas distort, about god distorted by the world we need to help one another out by gossiping with one another about god's goodness to us so, when you experience God being greatest, being true, great, true gain, share it. Gospel about it. Share what you've learned from the Bible. How are you getting on? Share how you're getting on making Jesus Lord of your life. Encourage one another. But why does it all matter? Okay. Why does it matter whether these Israelites fear God? Whether you or I fear God. If the arrogant evildoers are going to prosper anyway, is it ever going to make a difference? Well, let's look at God's final words. Looking at chapter four. God's final words. And there's words of warning and words of comfort. So first of all, words of warning. God is patient, God is compassionate, he's slow to anger and abounding in mercy. But there is a line in the sand. There is a day on the calendar, a day definitely coming when God will once and for all deal with evil justly. In verse 18, we've seen um, that this on this day, God will make a distinction, two groups and two groups only. The righteous who serve and fear God and the wicked who do not. Everything and everyone will be revealed for its true worth. Uh, chapter, chapter four, verse one. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. So the picture is one of total destruction. The arrogant evildoers, though not fearing God, are like crops cut down to stubble and finished off by a bushfire so intense that it burns up even the roots. No last chance, no return from exile. The arrogant and everything they've built their arrogance upon. Burned up. Those who oppressed and mocked God's people. Will end up, verse 3. Ashes trampled under their feet. It's full on, isn't it? It's full on description. Is this literally what will happen to people on this day of the Lord? Well. What we know is God has put it in terms that his people, in, in, as Malachi was written, God's put it in terms that they wouldn't understand as the most devastating destruction and defeat and loss that could be described. The important thing is, given this perspective, knowing what happens in the after credit sequence, shows us that anything we might be arrogant about, anything we think is better, a better deal for us than God, is actually the opposite. When God's people looked over their shoulders at the arrogant evildoers and concluded, oh, they're better off than me, they needed to take into account this day that's coming. See, God loves us and God wants what is best for us. And what's best for us is him. So anything that's against him or attempting to replace him is bad. Bad for us. It's evil. And if that's what we're about, this fire is our just and fair punishment. It's confronting, but it's also comforting. See, justice will be done. If you've been wronged or hurt, ripped off, and it seems that person's got away with it, justice will be done. You know, In Romans 12, we're told not to take revenge, not because there will be no vengeance, but because it is God who will avenge. It's comforting as we struggle in our fear of the Lord, because it's often hard to live for God, isn't it? And it's often hard to trust that it, that it is worth it. That things will work out for the best by following Jesus. And, and the huge cost that that entails. But this day will show things up for their true eternal worth. That the cost, the loss, the pain of following Jesus is actually the greatest gain because it's for God's glory It's comfort if we're struggling for identity. You know, if we're trying to work out who we are in life. Because it's comforting in its simplicity. Arrogant evildoer or fearing God, given righteousness by Jesus. Because the trouble is, every one of us, every one of us here has been arrogant. And we've all done evil. We've all hurt people. So how will we stand on this day? Because verse 5, it will be dreadful, but also great. So there are words of comfort, words of comfort. God will remember those who fear him and provide righteousness for us. God will provide righteousness for us. So righteousness, I mean, being right with God, God, being found in that, not as an arrogant evildoer, but belonging to God. Verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. So instead of loss and destruction, total provision, total satisfaction and joy. Uh, and Those words, Son of Righteousness. So in Psalms and in Isaiah... And there's this repeated image of God's mercy um, with the righteousness he provides being like the sun's rays. So, just as we receive light and heat from the sun, we receive mercy and righteousness from God. But how is that fair? If, If all of us have been arrogant evildoers, where is the punishment that we deserve? What happens to all our loose ends? Well, Jesus took all our arrogance, all our evil doing upon himself and paid for it on the cross. So from 2 Corinthians, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, God's given plenty of warning. He's given his people at this time, this prophet Malachi, to expose their heart towards God so that they could turn, return to him. And then in verse 5, it's a bit odd, isn't it? He promises to send Elijah before this day of the Lord comes. Um, so we know, with the benefit of the Gospels, that this promised Elijah would be John the Baptist. See, the prophet Elijah, he was like a catalyst. You know, his ministry was like a catalyst that, that helped God's people Realize their sin, turn away from it back to God. John the Baptist's role was to wake the people up, realizing their need for repentance in in readiness for Jesus' coming. But for us, we know even more. Now God has fully revealed himself and his plan to save us in Jesus. All the cards are on the table, all the information we need. And not only that, when we trust and believe in Jesus, make him Lord of our life, he's with us by his Spirit to help us fear and honor him. We're guaranteed not just escaping the flames, but adoption into God's family. So God will definitely act on a definite, decisive day that makes a difference. And the question is will we be ready? The question is, who are you going to be in life? Whose are you going to be? Are you going to be spending your life with the arrogant and evildoers? Chasing gain for yourself, which will never satisfy. Or will you live in joyful, fulfilling, God-glorifying fear of the Lord? See, Jesus is always the better offer. Jesus fills us with life and light and righteousness. Jesus is true gain. So why hope? Because the day of the Lord is coming. And on that day, because of Jesus, we've got absolute assurance that our role will be his frolicking calves. Giving God's righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, for your justice that there is a day coming when evil will be separated out and dealt with once and for all. But thank you for your mercy. Thank you for Jesus and that the he puts us right with you and deals with all our sin, all our evil doing and arrogance. Please help us to live in light of that day that is coming. Help us to fear you, know the joy and goodness of fearing you.